Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And today, well, dun 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 dun, it's the Electoral Reform Special. I've pledged an Electoral Reform Special for many months and here it is. Now, I know some of you will be really excited at the announcement. Uh, But in case some of you think, oh, bloody hell, electoral reform, boring, boring, snoring, boring. Just to reassure you, I kind of will be your guide as someone who is or has been sceptical on this theme, partly because I've always seen it as quite boring. You know, this thing, I mean, isn't it fascinating if you choose STV rather than AV? Oh, bloody hell. So don't worry. It is actually interesting, very interesting and will become so, I promise you. And the rest of you, I know, will be really excited uh, by the electoral reform special. So that's coming up in a minute. Uh, Brilliant questions as ever. I'll rush through the notices because I know how excited some of you will be at the electoral reform special and how tentative others of you will feel at this announcement. Thank you, those of you subscribing to Patreon. Hopefully, you will now have episode two of our new series of bonus podcasts looking at apparent calamitous government errors. Uh, Episode one for October was Margaret Thatcher and the poll tax. The episode for November is Tony Blair and Iraq. And there's going to be a couple more of these in this series over December and uh, January. So yeah, thank you for that. Uh, And just very quickly, a reminder that the Christmas specials are coming up. One live at uh, King's Place on December the 5th, and then uh, live at uh, the Old Market Theatre for the first time in uh, Brighton on Monday, December the 12th. And these Christmas specials are great because we can look back at the whole year, and I think this is the wackiest year since 1945. Three prime ministers, four chancellors, five education secretaries. What the hell's been going on? And then, of course, with all your help, we'll look ahead to 2023 and make, no doubt, wholly inaccurate prophecies in this unruly period when something is rotten in the state of the UK. Um, So anyway, yeah, uh, tickets available on the websites of those theatres, King's Place and the Old Market Theatre, and will hopefully be in the blurb for the podcast. But I'm speeding along because I already sense the excitement at the electoral reform special. So if I can... Uh, begin, if it's all right, with all of you, with the reasons why I have always been a kind of a, a skeptic is probably too mild. I've I've opposed uh, electoral reform, and one of them is the sort of haphazard way in which it recurs as a theme. Uh, in other words, there isn't some sort of constant in relation to electoral reform. It erupts at certain points and then goes away again. And it tends to erupt after long periods of conservative rule, when non-conservatives conclude there's nothing they can do about it, and we need to change the voting system. So it was very interesting. It, it, It occurred very haphazardly during the 1992 election, when Neil Kinnock revealed that he had become a supporter of electoral reform. I don't think he had planned to say this. Uh, He hadn't cleared a path, really, with his party to say it, but he felt it. 
I think he sensed he might have to do, do a deal with the Liberal Democrats if there were a hung parliament in 1992, and he said it. And then Roy Hattersley, his deputy leader, who was then a passionate opponent of electoral reform, said he wasn't in favour of it. And it just conveyed a kind of sense of chaos, which kind of had been a theme of Labour's opponents in the newspapers during that 92 election campaign. It certainly didn't help and perhaps hindered. And when the Tories won then for the fourth successive time, electoral reform became a passion for a section of the Labour Party. And when I say passion, I really mean passion. It was for some rather like Europe became for the Tories. So to give you an example, I remember doing an interview uh, soon after that election and John Smith had become Labour leader with the MP Jeff Rooker, who was a sort of moderate, expedient uh, MP from the Midlands. He's now in the House of Lords. And, And he said, there will be blood on the carpet if John Smith does not grant a referendum on electoral reform. There was a passion and a willingness to use that kind of violent imagery to convey the degree of that passion. Then you had the messy situation of uh, John Smith, who was not a supporter of electoral reform, feeling compelled to at least appease those who wanted it. So he set up a review, that's what leaders do when they're unsure what they really want the outcome uh, to be, or when they do know what they want the outcome to be, which is the opposite of what uh, these people all wanted. He set up the plant committee to look into electoral reform. And it was John Smith who proposed a referendum when he was leader on electoral reform. That's often forgotten because When Tony Blair became leader and formed this close relationship with Paddy Ashdown, part of the closeness was based on the commitment to hold a referendum on electoral reform. And many just have assumed that it was Tony Blair who put that forward after he became leader in 1994 as part of his bonding exercise with Paddy Ashdown. Actually, Blair inherited the commitment to hold a referendum on electoral reform. And then you had another unsatisfactory dance around the issue, because I think Tony Blair was always privately opposed to uh, changing the voting system, but he couldn't say it because his relationship with Paddy Ashdown depended on this commitment. And Blair, who thought that there needed to be this realignment with Labour and the Lib Dems working together, needed that commitment. Famously, that referendum never took place when Labour won a landslide, and the issue kind of disappeared again. And that's what tends to happen. And now, of course, it has revived to the point where it looks as if a majority within uh, the Labour Party membership support it, some MPs and so on. uh, But Keir Starmer is wary, as all Labour leaders have been, except, as I say, very belatedly, Neil Kinnock in 19. 92. So it's messy. And the legendary uh, Tim Bale, uh, academic, author, just written a brilliant book on the Conservative Party. I hadn't realised this. Uh, Tim uh, lived in New Zealand for a long time. 
New Zealand famously had a referendum and adopted electoral reform in the mid-1990s. But there too it happened haphazardly. Almost mistakenly, the New Zealand Labour leader at the time, uh, at an earlier general election, and it wasn't planned, a bit like the Kinnock thing in 1992, sort of committed himself to holding a referendum on electoral reform. And I think he subsequently said it was a mistake that this commitment was made. But anyway, the die was cast and the system was changed. But it hadn't emerged from clear thinking. And let us be honest at this point in our electoral reform special that the reason it becomes a heated issue after a long period of conservative rule is because people want a different outcome. So electoral reform is not the uh, consequence of kind of pure, noble thinking about uh, voters becoming more engaged, although we'll come on to that shortly. It is about outcomes and wanting a better outcome. It was not coincidence that when the gang of four who formed the SDP in 1981, came out for electoral reform, having not been uh, for all their careers in favour of it. When they were in Labour, they were uh, fine with first-past-the-post, SDP, they wanted electoral reform because it was their route to some form of power. So it's about outcome. Now, I don't say that in a condemning way. We should all be concerned about outcomes. However, this leads to my next kind of wariness about electoral reform, which was the Tony Blair wariness. He used to say that electoral reform cannot be an excuse for not changing the Labour Party. Um, and I think he was absolutely right about that. I disagreed with the some of his assessment of the degree to which Labour needed uh, to change. Um, but I think his assessment was right that in some respects, it's quite a lazy thing for Labour to say, right, we can't win under this bloody voting system, so we'll change the voting system, rather than saying what is required of a Labour Party to be able to win and, crucially, and, and Tony Blair to some extent missed this bit out, and to be able to change the UK in ways that really transform people's lives or can be transformative in the same way the Conservatives with total confidence move in when they win or don't quite win an election like Cameron and Osborne in 2010 and move at the speed of sound from the radical right. So how could Labour win and then do things that changes uh, uh, Britain? Those are questions I think that are more fundamental as Blair did than changing the voting system uh, as a kind of way of dealing with endless electoral defeats. Okay, I hope those of you who are evangelical aren't getting really pissed off. I'm coming to a denouement, uh, which, anyway, let's, I don't want to do a spoiler uh, at this point. Third, voters, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, are turned off by this issue. I mean, they're not interested in anything, most voters, uh, to do with politics. Let's be honest. It's depressing. They should be. I condemn them for not being, um, but that's where we are. And for any potential prime minister to make this a kind of focus won't excite most voters like it does us. 
So, you know, I, I mean, I, that AV referendum was a farce in um, the coalition era. No one had advocated that particular system. Cameron and Osborne uh, slaughtered Clegg over it. The Labour leadership were theoretically in favour, but I suspect many of them voted against. They weren't going to do a favour to Clegg at that point with good grounds not to. And most voters weren't bothered by it. And um, Roy Jenkins, uh, when he had his propositions commissioned by Tony Blair, he did a tour of the country and many of the meetings were poorly attended. Uh, the, the, the vote in the AV referendum, that was nothing to do with the Jenkins thing. Also low turnouts. The only place where there was a queue to vote was near my polling station in Crouch End. You know, this is not a voter priority. And that brings me to my final thing. Actually, the priorities of voters are, you know, do chime with the demands of now. There are always epic crises facing incoming governments. And is there the space to change a voting system? With all the disruption that implies, including MPs who've just been elected to their seats, possibly losing those seats in a reconfiguration, uh, depending on what voting system is. And this is when, for example, to take the next government, they will face the biggest set of challenges, you know, again, since 1945. Um, you know, if, if there is a Labour government, there will be... Well, where do we start? You know, you can begin with climate change, the cost of living crisis, the dire state of the public services, which require investment. But yet, if you borrow, the markets go crazy, not least after the trust era, which frames any borrowing as sinful and reckless. Now, these are huge issues and immediate priorities. And as I say, what tends to happen is uh, conservative governments from the radical right move in and from day one implement begin implementing their vision. And when Labour governments come in, they move tentatively and slowly. With all of that going on, is there really space for an upheaval uh, which would change everything? Those have always been uh, my doubts. However, dun 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 I have come to the view, and I've been converted by some of you uh, when you have emailed me about this, uh, that the time has come uh, when uh, the voting system should be changed and should be changed as a matter of urgency. And here is why. Uh, I was particularly struck by an email. I think it was from Caroline Morgan, uh, one of our great uh, emailers from Brussels. Because uh, I've always said that there is, uh, for all the problems, a kind of validity to the first-past-the-post system because you have these two big parties, Conservative and Labour, that are themselves coalitions. And so there is a purity because there is a dynamic between these two parties which we see in front of our eyes, and then we can make a judgment as to which of these two coalitions we want to come in. Uh, but she pointed out, and others of you pointed out, that these parties no longer function as a coalition. They have become dysfunctional in many different ways and uh, kind of dishonest in their dysfunctionality. So you have to take a depressing example from this last weekend where Keir Starmer, paralysed by the focus groups and his 
uh, need to woo red wall voters as he sees them. And I don't think I think he sees them as caricatures when they're more complicated, uh, said in an interview that there were too many foreign workers in the NHS and it's he wants more British workers in, ignoring the fact that, uh, you know, it takes years to train people for most of the jobs in the NHS and there is an immediate crisis now. He said it not because he believes it, because that's what he thinks needs to be said to get the red wall. Um, and uh, the return of many people who worked for Tony Blair to work for him is not a sign of strength, but a sign of dysfunctionality, that there's no one available from a new era to go forward. Tony Blair didn't hire loads of people who worked for Harold Wilson because Labour was still just about breathing in that earlier period. The whole Corbyn era was uh, another example where Labour as a coalition could not function. Labour MPs could not bear it and showed that they could not bear it. And in the end, Corbyn couldn't manage to get together a kind of broad coalition, although he tried at the beginning with his first shadow cabinet and so on. And on the Tory side, there has been a a kind of purge of the One Nation wing. And so you now have a split between the sort of Sunak-Thatcherites and the Johnsonian English exceptionalists. If that is the choice, uh, the the, the part that two-party system has broken down. Oh, by the way, before I move on, one of the other doubts I have is that when new changes are made to voting systems, they're done for the wrong reasons. Uh, So, for example, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland have different voting systems. But Tony Blair, for example, gave the uh, Scottish system a more proportional approach to appease Paddy Ashnell, not because he believed in it. He thought Labour was so strong in Scotland, it wouldn't matter. That's not the reason to do these things. But anyway, so the two-party system has broken down. And it is so clear now uh, that... The UK, in its dysfunctionality, just needs shaking up. And maybe the a change in the voting system can bring about such uh, an improvement in the quality of politics and the policies that arise from it. One of my other doubts has been the fact that the smaller parties have been not really fit to be part of governing forces. You know, so to take the fractured non-Tory part of the political situation, you know, you have the Greens divided uh, and, and, and would be problematic as a governing party, party at the moment. The Lib Dems, you know, who are they? They haven't really had an honest post-mortem about how, at first anyway, Nick Clegg and some of the so-called Cleggites in the Lib Dems were so at ease uh, with the uh, Cameron Osborne coalition, the tripling of tuition fees, the uh, public service reforms, uh, which uh, I saw Clegg on the day Andrew Lansley published his NHS white paper. Clegg was really excited about it. He said it was a perfect fusion of a Lib Dem support for localism and and the Tories' desire to kind of uh, move away from a, a state-run NHS. So who are they, the Lib Dems? Is it the party of kind of the Lloyd George radicalism, the kind of David Steele, Charles Kennedy, Lib Dems, who were, those two were very opposed to the uh, uh, coalition? 
Or are they the sort of Cleggite, David Law liberals? I, I, I think these kind of things need to be resolved to some extent. Uh, so the Lib Dems, Greens and so on. But I think if there was a change in the voting system, which gave them the chance to be part of a radical governing force, which is an alternative to the radical right governing force in place now, they would presumably mature. I don't know that for sure, but there might be a chance of uh, that happening. One of my other doubts is there is no time or appetite for endless debates about what the voting system should be. And therefore, what I think uh, should happen is there is one on the table, which is the one that uh, Blair commissioned, the Jenkins report, which I've read in preparation for this electoral reform special. And it's by no means perfect. It's very elegantly written with a lot of context. Jenkins did it knowing his history. But it is interesting because I was looking at the uh, criteria that Blair set out for the Jenkins report. And it's quite tricky, actually. And it shows, in a way, it almost conveys his doubts. So here were the criteria for that Jenkins report, which, remember, was commissioned in 97 after the Labour landslide amidst much ambiguity from the top of the Labour Party. Blair asked them to address broad proportionality, the need for stable government, an extension of voter choice, and the maintenance of a link between MPs and geographical constituencies. Quite a tough ask, especially to the need for stable government. Because again, it shows or hints that the outcome of all of this is the essence of uh, changing a voting system, the need for stable government. How can a voting system ensure it? First past the post uh, nowadays, another reason why it's time for it to go, doesn't bring about stable government necessarily. We've had these coalitions, we had the 2017 hung parliament and so on. And Jenkins came up with uh, a combination of the alternative vote and a list system, which would then make the final outcome more proportional, because, of course, the alternative vote is not a proportional system. Now, there are problems with that, uh, two obvious ones. One, uh, the alternative vote is the basis of it, and that was rejected in a referendum. The other is you have two types of MP, uh, one uh, represented and elected by constituencies, the others from a, a, a list. I don't think either are big problems, actually. As I say, that referendum was so weird and conducted with all kinds of different calculations being made by the Labour leadership, Clegg, Cameron and Osborne. It was a kind of freakish thing. Two, I think it's quite good, actually, if uh, a list system becomes part of who gets into the House of Commons. Uh, Looking at how selections are carried out at the moment, it might improve the overall composition of the House of Commons to have some coming in through other means. And once there, you know, people would just uh, get on with it. So that is the one. I think if it were to happen, there shouldn't be a long debate about systems. It will drive people crazy. There's one on the shelf. And incidentally, it's uh, when uh, the Jenkins thing uh, was dropped by Blair, William Haig said to his people, I thought Tony Blair had a crafty idea to take the Conservatives out of power forever. And I was wrong because he dropped it. So Haig was alarmed by the idea 
of that Jenkins report being put into a practice. If it had been, there would have been many different uh, policy developments uh, between now and then. Britain would probably still be in the European Union and so on. I just think uh, that it would lead to more open debate where you could have a kind of uh, radical left party which doesn't have to deal with the endless onslaughts from the uh, right of the Labour Party. The right of the Labour Party could be more honest about its pitch and would have to bear in mind the pressures from the Greens and the Lib Dems as well as what they consider to be reactionary red wall voters. It might just open it up. The Tories could also uh, you know, if you want a kind of Farage-type party, you have it instead of it being called the Conservative Party. And, you, you know, th- then you could have the One Nation. Uh, God knows what would happen, frankly. Uh, but it might become a more honest, open debate, and voters might feel more engaged because their vote will matter, whereas in many constituencies it doesn't. Uh, so if it can be done quickly... Uh, through using the Jenkins report. I suppose there will have to be a referendum. That should be quick, but I think it's very winnable if um, you have the governing party or parties campaigning for it in unison, which didn't, of course, happen in the coalition era. And then we are in a new world. And this sense of there needing to be a new world is obviously very profound. So, those are the reasons why I've been opposed and those are the reasons why I can sort of see a way through. Although, if I'm entirely honest, I can't really see a way through. Uh, If there's a hung parliament uh, and the Lib Dems insist on this as a condition for support, I think Starmer would grant it. I think, you know, he's not going to talk about it in advance of an election because it implies weakness uh, that you can't win under this voting system. Uh, If there's a Labour overall majority of any size, uh, it's not going to happen. Starmer has seized control of the Labour Party at every level virtually, and he won't want to destabilise things with all the other challenges by holding a referendum on voting. For Anyway, he can't because it wouldn't have been in the manifesto. So it's still a distant flickering light on the horizon is my kind of analysis, but it does flicker and I'm pleased it's flickering there we are. Those are my thoughts. I'm sorry if they are not resounding on one side or the other, but I've come round to supporting electoral reform, and I think it should be the Jenkins report, and I think it should be done quickly in the first year of a Labour government, and then it's settled. And then the election after would be fought under a new voting system, and parties can adapt accordingly, and I think there's a chance of a healthier debate uh, in politics instead of you know, on the one side, the Tories winning most of the time in a dance with their newspapers and Labour leaders having to say things that they don't believe in an attempt to win what they consider to be the key seats in the north of England. I mean, it's just it's just kind of depressing, really. It must be depressing for them on one level. Uh, anyway, there we are, some thoughts. Now, do let me know what you think. I know there'll be a lot of emails on it. Uh, for those of you new listeners who've been drawn in at the prospect of a debate on electoral reform, steverick 14 icloudcom And the debate will continue. I'll read out some of them uh, next week. But for now, if it's okay with all of you, your questions from this week.
So let's begin. Okay, I'm just uh, getting them up here. Yeah, uh, Anthony Wilson writes, Steve, I love listening to the show as I cook the evening meal, blog about poetry and mark my students' papers. Oh, wow, you do all those things together, Anthony. Uh, that's 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 a, an amazing multi-skill tasking going on. Yeah, definitely anti-productivity down here in rainy Exeter. It sounds freakishly productive, Anthony. Anyway, he says, apart from Boris Johnson, who, away from the cameras and after-dinner speech circuit, is reportedly a shy introvert? Yeah, part of Johnson. I've seen it close up. I used to, every now and again, do a Radio 4 programme with him and stuff when he was a mere journalist. And and there is is a shyness. Some people say it's self-absorption, but I think there is a shyness. Can you think of another political figure whose outward persona is so far removed from their core self? I think of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who acts as a fogeyish Edwardian toff, but that belies his much more insidious political project of sowing division within his party and foisting a disastrous Brexit upon our economy. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, that, and I'll be interested in what you all think in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, the gap between the public persona and the real person is interesting i I think for example if you look at someone like gordon brown who when he became prime minister indeed when he was chancellor he was so wary of uttering a word out of place that could trigger a headline about uh labor's tax bombshells and all the rest of it uh he became robotic and he wasn't uh, robotic he was a person who could laugh who had a great range of interests loved football, loves literature, poetry, and all the rest of it. Uh, So there was a sort of gap there between his public image and the reality. You know, Keir Starmer isn't boring, for example. You know, here's someone who kind of learnt the piano with Fatboy Slay's brilliant musician, uh, kind of decided to leave a successful career in law for the oscillating ride of British politics. There are loads of others, Anthony, but it's a good theme. Maybe we'll do a Christmas special on the, on the, who knows, I'm thinking aloud. Anyway, get back to the cooking and the marking, Anthony. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Anderson. Oh, he said, excellent podcast on Iraq. That was the bonus Patreon podcast. You can hear it if you subscribe to the Patreon. Thank you. I broadly agree with your analysis that uh, it was about maintaining a close alliance with the US. Yeah, that's one of the themes of Blair and Iraq. You sketched out some of the lack of attention to the likely consequences of that war. I would add that the relatively successful interventions in Balkans and Sierra Leone, together with what at the time seemed a relatively easy and positive intervention in Afghanistan, seduced military and political leaders on both sides of the Atlantic, that uh, the same would apply to Iraq. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I I do think that was a factor. Yeah, you've added to the reasons why Blair went to war. Well, he didn't actually. Why? This is a key uh, theme of my reflections on that. Uh, That wasn't the call he had to make. The call he had to make was, would he back Bush, who had decided he was going to go to war in Iraq. Can't resist also mentioning that whilst Blair won the election in 2005, it was the beginning of the end of Labour Party in Scotland. They held most of their seats, but their vote started to fragment, and Iraq was a significant factor. 
Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't clocked that, that 2005, there was a fr- fragmentation. Thank you. Well, we're going over Hugh Carr now in Edinburgh. I, I think Andrew was writing from Scotland as well. Hugh's cooking stir-fry beef and red pepper uh, as he listens. Oh, yeah, a lot of cooking going on uh, amongst uh, the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. A Tory friend, who I think is probably aligned to Sunak, worries that Johnson, whom he detests, will return like the B-movie villain who's killed in the second reel, but who turns out to be dead in the penultimate scene. Oh, it turns out not to be dead in the penultimate scene. That often happens in politics, the film noir theme. But Johnson's route back, barring another disaster, is a coup against Sunak, who appears to have the basic competence and integrity to avoid uh, the fates of his predecessors, and which would surely trigger irresistible election demands. So are we now post-Johnson? Hugh, we are pretty sure we're post-Johnson. Uh, and your friend who likes Sunak, Neaton Wari. Uh, it, it's very hard to see a way he bounces back before the election. And after the election, I think the Tories will want to move on from this stormy period, whatever happens in that election. If Sunak does well, it remain, it, Sunak will still be in place. If they do badly, I think the time will be, the theme will be time for a new era. And they won't turn to this figure. Uh, so yeah, you can celebrate with your stir fry. And your friend who likes Sunak can as well. Carol Boyd says, would you please consider the similarities and differences between Major and Sunak replacing big ideological figures and track Sunak's efforts looking at the comparative achievements of Major in the early years? Uh, I wonder if Sunak is up to the early challenge uh, and Major was underrated. Uh, Yeah, I think I mentioned this last week, so just very briefly, Major did in 1990, after following Thatcher, give the impression of real change. Uh, It was partly an impression, partly substantial, but there was a sense of real change. Whereas Rishi Sunak so far has not really pulled it off. If you look at the themes whirling around, it's now sleaze with um, Gavin Williamson, Braverman, there was dithering over whether he would go to COP because he hadn't quite realised that the role of a prime minister extends beyond economic crises and so on. And his shtick at PMQ's Prime Minister's Questions is very Johnson-like. You're an Islington lawyer, Remainer, and all this kind of stuff. So I agree that he will be much more competent and diligent, but that is the absolute minimum bar, Carol. Uh, so I think he hasn't got yet what Major did in 1990. Thank you. Uh, Michael Harris says, back in the summer, I felt you were writing off Sunak too soon. I think my view has been borne out, albeit in a different context, in that no one could have visioned Trust blowing herself up so efficiently and spectacularly. I listened to your recent pod and once finished felt rather gloomy. Oh no, not again. But I think you may have ignored your own mantra of each election having its own lines. And that uh, word again, context. Yeah, you're right, Michael. I wasn't making a prediction. For those of you who didn't hear last week, I, I outlined the route that is still there for Sunak to win next time. It's a very narrow path, but the path exists. It wasn't a prediction I was making. And Michael outlines the different contexts. It's still, in my view, it's been my view actually pre the events of recent uh, weeks uh, that the election will either be a hung parliament or a Labour overall majority. I've had that view for ages, because, uh, for lots of reasons. But I wanted to explore the route that is still in place 
for a Sunak win. And if you didn't hear it, it's there last week, but Michael outlines the reasons why it's not 1992. Peter Lowe Laws says, I've enjoyed listening to your park podcast for many years, usually while jogging. Yeah, lots of people jog, Peter, while listening to this. I get frustrated at British voters' apathy. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I've become a, an electoral reform convert. Uh, but I do see a silver lining. Whilst many voters supported Johnson because they didn't know or care about his flaws, it was precisely because they were not that engaged that they could quickly withdraw their support when he disappointed them. Contrast this with America, where many voters are engaged but in a partisan way, which means there's a real possibility of Trump winning another term. Uh, Peter, yeah, I think uh, British voters and American voters are very similar, actually. I, I don't think there's a greater level of engagement in the United States and the turnout in presidential elections are lower than in general elections. And I think the support for Johnson and the support for Trump were similar, that uh, voters clung to phrases, take back control here, uh, make America great again in the Trump sloganizing uh, repertoire, and don't look much beyond these kind of things, and that they, you know, see these two as outsiders and performers and with them. I've kind of th- thought for a long time that America and British politics are at one, except for British politics is more secular. You don't get all this kind of religious moral uh, stuff on the whole, although maybe that's changing too. Henry Midgley says, I wonder if the trust crisis was actually more interesting than just the fall of an incompetent prime minister. I'm intrigued by the role of the Bank of England, both in terms of the inflation rate, its responsibility, the decision to unwind quantitative easing, and then the decision to bail out the pension funds. Since 1997, I wonder if we've had the vocabulary to really discuss the bank's role in economic policy. Yeah, that's a a good point, actually. It, it, It the Bank of England has real power. It was one of the things that the Labour government or Gordon Brown and Ed Balls decided in 1997 had to be done to secure trust. They knew that markets would hover over a Labour government and they wanted to get that trust in place right at the beginning. So they gave a lot of power to the Bank of England. They did it in a very clever way. They, for example, selected the Monetary Policy Committee. They dictated the terms that the Bank of England had to meet. But then it was over to the Bank of England. And it is true that, uh, in a way, a lot of the reporting implies a kind of, or did actually pre the trust drama, that prime ministers and governments were omnipotent. But actually, quite a lot of the power lies elsewhere. And the decision-making of the Bank of England is really crucial. That's why any Bank of England governor needs to be scrutinised and held to account because they have real power. I think it's a good point that we don't really do enough of that. Paul Cooper wonders whether it's unusual after 14 years, which it will be in 2024, of opposition to have so much experience already in place on a current front bench. Here is the roll call of those on the front bench now for Labour that have served in government before. John Healy, David Lammy, Karen Buck, Yvette Cooper, Ed Miliband, Pat McFadden, Alan Campbell, Barbara Keeley. Uh, or maybe they're all MPs. I don't, I don't know which. Uh, and there are more from the Lords uh, as well. I don't know, actually. Paul says, no fly-by-night trust quartet combos here. Is this unusual? Don't know, really, uh, Paul, if it is unusual. I often look back to the uh, final shadow cabinet uh, that Neil Kinnock led in 92, 
and it had a lot of experience in it. I mean, John Smith had been in the cabinet. He was shadow chancellor. Margaret Beckett uh, had been had been a minister in the 70s and so on. I think it's around about the same kind of level of experience. Although, of course, by 1997, the Tories had been in power for 18 years. And so there were very few with their connections with government. And that lack of experience showed uh, when Labour got in in 97. Venetia Kane says, would it not be a good thing uh, at the beginning of 24, with at least four months to go to a general election, if the polls were not going Labour's way, Keir Starmer's way, for him to start advocating rejoining the single market to unlike all the positives that would bring. I'll not lobby you here on your electoral reform special, but you can now, Venetia, it's been done. You've presumably come to your own conclusions. If I disagree with you, you can be sure that I'll join thousands who afterwards will write to say, yeah, yeah, I'm waiting for the thousands of emails, Venetia. But on the other thing, I think he's got to find a form of words that gives him the space to rejoin the single market if Labour are in power after the next election, because he's not going to get the economic growth he needs without doing so. It's not because the single market is the be-all and end-all. And yes, it does involve tough calls, for example, on freedom of movement. But the, the British economy, more than just about any other in the EU, was set up to make the most of that single market. Um, and I, I, I think it's got to, he, he needs to have the option of going back in without making a firm commitment to do so, because then you get into the free movement of labour and he's not going to put the case for that. Uh, with the red wall issue etc rob stevens says i've been enjoying the podcast for many months uh time for my first question you talked about the tories being able to present a facade of unity as they did pre-92 and were unable to do before 97 and that it's a uh, new broom don't let labor ruin it dynamic that leads to a sunak election win do you really think there's any doubt about the Tories simply collapsing in on themselves over the next 18 months around their many fault lines, immigration, Europe, tax, public spending, Brexit and global Britain levelling up and the red wall, to name a few? Yeah, well, a, a form of implosion could happen, Rob. As I said, I was, I was, all I was doing last week was outlining a narrow path towards their winning again. And it is, it is really narrow. So, yeah, that there are fault lines. Uh, the basic one, as I say, is the sort of Sunak Hunt, George Osborne, turbocharged Thatcherite versus English exceptionalism, nationalism, boosterism, cakeism. That's the kind of divide. Now, you could uh, busk it for two years without it imploding, but it might because there is one. Finally, Helen Gordon. Steve, I enjoyed this week's podcast, so that was the Sunak one. Just wanted to comment on your statement that Sunak has never explained why he supported Brexit. I listened to a rival podcast recently, that's unforgivable, Helen, where Nick Robinson was interviewing Sunak a couple of years ago and asked him about Brexit. Sunak replied that he had run the figures and could see benefits in the longer term, which showed to me how someone apparently intelligent could be confounded by data and also what a breathtaking lack of political nous this evidence from our new prime minister he may be superficially clever but he has little judgment and no analytical intellect as well as questionable political judgment yeah oh, that's interesting i didn't hear that one and that's from helen the baker uh, 
she bakes bread. She gave me some bread uh, once at King's Place. I still reflect joyously on the bread. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that and obviously wouldn't listen to that kind of low-grade podcast. But run the figures, but also what figures? There have been no economic benefits to this at all. And I say it's depressing when there have been all these other economic hits, the pandemic, the 2008 crash, the Ukraine situation, to bring about the self-inflicted madness of the Frost-Johnson deal. So I don't know what figures he was running, but he's never done a big speech on it. You know, the others have all done it. They were more prominent in the referendum campaign, and Johnson has had to give speeches about it. Trust talks about the Brexit advantages. Indeed, he does as well, the Brexit freedoms. But he's never really spelt it out in any detail. But it's interesting, it was the economic data and running the figures. Uh, that's what he is. You know, he's a product of Goldman Sachs, and then the Treasury, from which he to which he rose to the top very, very speedily, and then to the top of the British government. And of course, that's why it explains his decision not to go to COP. You know, he thought, well, I've got to look at the figures for the autumn statement. We've got to balance the books. And it is quite a narrow way of thinking. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Helen, for alerting us to his thoughts on <laughs> Brexit. And I think we better, should we, should we stop there? Because you'll all be exhausted with the electoral reform talk and all the kind of other stuff your brilliant range of questions. Uh, so look forward to hearing some of your responses. And uh, yeah, well, look, all kinds of things happening this week, as ever. Uh, so keep running, baking and cooking and all that kind of stuff, having a good time. Uh, and let me know what you think. Um, I think, it's, it, yeah, it should happen. It, and it should be the Jenkins report. So no endless debate about changing the voting system, what form it should take. Just get on with it with something that's on the shelf. But I'm sure lots of you will have very, very different ideas. Anyway, look, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the great podmasters that uh, produce this and stand over us all with their brilliant podcasts. And uh, yeah, keep in touch on all fronts. Oh yeah, if you could leave a review, but only if it's a good one, please, uh, because that means it gets to more people, this uh, podcast. Uh, thanks so much. See you next week. Bye. Bye.